Welcome to Come Along for the Ride, where we make the world a better place for horses. I'm your host, Tracy Malone. I was born on the country of the Wiradjuri people, and this podcast is brought to you from my home in the Sanford Valley, in the northwest of Brisbane, Australia. I'd like to acknowledge the Turrbal and Yuggera people, the traditional custodians of this land on which this podcast is made, and where my family and horses live and gather. I'd like to recognise their connection to land, water, community and our sacred animals. I am grateful to Elders, past, present and emerging, for keeping this sacred land here in Sanford safe and protected throughout many tens of thousands of years. I have great pride to live on country where the oldest known human beings tended to this land. I'm also grateful that you have taken the time to choose this podcast at this very moment. Thank you for being a part of the global change we are making to the welfare and training of horses. If you'd like to support the podcast and all the work that I do, then you can. Just head on over to patreon.com slash come along for the ride podcast and sign up. From as little as a cup of coffee a month, you can help me keep this podcast going. There are many tiers that you can choose from, and if everyone who listens gave only $5 a month, it would make a massive positive difference to me. There's a tier in there for small business subscription, just like the one Peter Papp took up from Peter and the Herd. This is the one where your business gets a mention each podcast. Peter works with equine behaviour and trauma recovery and equine communication, human and horse relationship building. Peter has actually had communication with my mare Gypsy, who's the one you see in the podcast picture with me, and he was spot on about everything, so I can highly recommend his work personally. You'll find the links to Peter's work in the show notes. In this episode, I speak with Jane Myers from Equiculture. Jane and her husband, Stuart, created the Equicentral system of managing horse properties in a sustainable way out of Stuart's constant questioning of why things are done in a certain way. Why do we have to take the hay out to the horse? Why can't they come in for it? This took them on an amazing mission to create this fantastic system that any horse owner can use. In the coming years, they have refined and are continually adding new information to this amazing system. In this interview, we talk about so many of my favourite topics, soil, regenerative farming methods, manure and dung beetles, mulch, and how you too can make a huge difference to your horse property, which excites me to no end. I've been an organic gardener for over 10 years now, so I was a kid in a candy store in this conversation. But the best part for me was that in the course of this conversation, Jane converted my entire mindset from horses are bad for the land and environment to horses are great for the environment. Bad management makes them look bad, but they're not. I was so excited by that and relieved by that. I don't have to carry this weight on my shoulders anymore that that I have something can, that conflicts with, you know, my two loves conflict with each other, which are horses and Mother Earth and the environment. I hope you get some really great insights and tips from this interview, just as I did. Here is Jane. Jane, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Thank you for inviting me, Tracy. It's lovely to be here. Yeah, you've been a a long time on my list, so I'm very excited to be able to finally have a good conversation with you. Now, you are the creator of an amazing system called the Equicentral System, and I would love to know how on earth that came about. 
Well, that's an interesting story, really. It all started many years ago when we lived in Ballarat at the time in Victoria. Um, as you can probably tell from my accent, we're not actually originally from Australia and we actually now live back in the UK. But we lived in Australia for 25 years. Uh, we had a large-ish for horse property in Victoria. And um, my husband, who is a typical horse husband, very clever person, but he's a typical horse husband, he was always saying, why are we doing this? Why do we have to do it like that? Wouldn't it be easier to do this? And I spent many years resisting him and saying, no, this is how we do things, because it's always been done that way. And eventually I started listening to him because he was suggesting that things like, why can't the horses do some of the moving around themselves? Why do we have to push a wheelbarrow, for instance, through the wind and the rain and the mud? to take it out to a distant field, paddock, when the horses could walk themselves back to a central area where everything is already there for them. And if, as I say, eventually I listened to him and that is how the Equicentral system first started. It actually started as a labour saving idea, um, but it's become much more than that because it's become about environmental management, about creating land for wildlife, um, it's become about so many, it's become, it just encompasses everything now to do with keeping your horses sustainably. And is that something that you just noticed as a side effect almost of setting up a system or is it something that you, yeah. that you deliberately yes. thought of? Well, because we, when we bought our property down in Victoria, we wanted, like many people who first buy a horse property, we wanted to do everything right. And we were very fortunate that the property had not had horses on it before. Um, it only had cattle on it. So the land was actually already in much better condition than land that has had horses on it for many years and has been mismanaged. Um, you know, what I mean by that is it's got lots of roofs and lawns, which is what you call, you know, what horses leave and what they graze and that sort of thing. It didn't have any of that and we wanted to do everything right um, and then another factor was we didn't actually have much money left over after buying the property so that was actually i'm sorry i'm digressing here a little bit but that was actually an advantage in the long run if we'd had money when we bought the property we would have actually ripped all these beautiful native pastures up and reseeded them with what we thought at the time was good horse pasture. So we'd have reseeded them with uh, ryegrass and clover and all those sorts of things that when you read books about horse pasture management, it actually tells you to do. And back then, I'm talking about nearly 30 years ago now, um, that we thought that's what you were meant to do, but we didn't, we couldn't afford to do that. So we had to manage what we had, which was native pasture. And obviously now we know that what we actually had was absolutely top class pasture. It was beautiful. Uh, um, native pasture um, so what I'm trying to say is we didn't have a lot of money so we couldn't do a lot of the things that we thought we, we needed to do instead we had to manage with what we had um, and we had to manage the land we had as sustainably as possible and so that was one of the drivers was that we couldn't we didn't have a lot of money so it had to be for instance we couldn't afford to buy a tractor so we had to do we, we harrowed using our uh, four-wheel drive that I pulled the horse float with um, but so that by that that meant we weren't actually damaging the land as much with a big heavy tractor on it for instance um, everything we did had to be efficient and inexpensive and I often say to people it's actually a good thing when sometimes when you can't afford 
uh, to do everything you want because you actually have to think of better ways of doing things so that's how it started was that we had to really think about what we did then when we um, started doing this we noticed that things like all the you know we had lots of bird life coming in and we had um we yeah lots of wildlife coming in we actually realized that what we were doing was good for wildlife at the same time and that wildlife lived alongside the horses even though horses aren't actually uh, you know meant to be in australia in that respect they act the wildlife actually fit in really well with the horses and lived alongside them so we became more as time went on we became much more in, interested in the environmental side of it and how did that then, so did you, once you noticed those things and became interested in the environmental side of it, did you actually um, study a bit more or how did you learn about the sustainability practices that you do now? Well, again, a, a few years later, I think it was, I actually was asked by CSIRO to write a book. First of all, I actually started out um, rewriting an original book they had, Horse Sense, and then they asked me if I would um like to write a book of my own and what would I like to write it on and so at the time I thought well there's actually not many books out there about how to manage a small horse property I know at the time we actually had 100 acres but in Australia many many people have five or ten acres mm -hmm. and also what's interesting is Australia as I often explain to people it's it's a country where it's very easy relative to other countries to buy land it's horses are relative to other countries very inexpensive so if unless you actually know what you're doing with that land it's very easy to, to overgraze that land very quickly because land is in, is relatively inexpensive and horses are relatively inexpensive and a lot of horse owners and this is not just in australia but anywhere really the reason they own that land is because they own horses not necessarily because they've got and usually not because they've got a background in land management so they end up owning land because of their love of horses rather than because like a farmer would own land to make a living from that land so it's a completely different reason for owning that land so because they don't have that land management background they'll often buy this five or ten acres but have not you know no education in how to actually manage that land so i suggested to csiro that i wrote a book with the title managing horses on small properties so i did that um and the book became a bestseller for csiro and by bestseller i don't mean in terms of harry potter or anything i mean mm -hmm. in terms of a textbook it became a steady bestseller for them so we realized that there was actually um, a market for this information so not long after writing the book, we were asked by a local riding club where we lived at the time near Ballarat to do a talk. Um, and we put this talk on and it was just an evening talk. And I think 30, about 30 people turned up that night and we thought, wow, well, this is obviously there's a, a, you know, people need this information. And there just happened to be somebody at that very first talk who worked for um, a local water cat. Well, she actually worked for the um, local authority and her her job was in the environment and she said to us where have you been all my life we've we need to be able to, to to speak to horse owners but because we're not horse people we don't know how to get that information across and what you're saying is just what we need them to hear and and because you're a horse person yourself then you can explain that um in in a way that makes sense to them 
So the local Ballarat Council then started to employ us to actually put talks on for people. And that's how it started. We started doing these talks and eventually we were doing these talks all up and down the East Coast and Tasmania and South Australia. We were doing many, many talks a year. Um, and, and what was interesting was because these talks were usually hosted by land care, local water catchment authorities, such as Melbourne Water, Sydney Water and so on. We were mixing with natural resource managers. So every time we put a talk on, we were learning even more ourselves and also from the people who came to our talks. We were learning from them all the time. So over quite a few years of doing this, we, we learned a lot about how keeping horses can fit in with good environmental management. And I should just mention as well, my before we emigrated to Australia, my um, I did a master's degree in um, equine science, but I actually specialised in grazing behaviour. So um, my area of interest is how horses behave when they're grazing, when they're in the domestic situation or when they're in the wild situation. And, and that's that was a background to all of this, how that was what I was particularly interested in. And so I brought that, that looking at horses from a behavioural point of view to writing the book in the first place. So, so that's again how it sort of got started. And so what was your finding for the difference between horse behaviour and grazing in the wild and domestic situations? Well, obviously in the wild, there's no fences. And actually that's a really interesting question because we have to remember, as I said, in the wild, there are no fences. There's no gateways, there's no fences. Horses live in what's called, what's really interesting is horses, unlike many other large grazing herbivores, they actually live in what's called a home range. So if you think about when you watch those, those TV shows about, say, wildebeest and so on, what they're always doing is migrating across the continent. So they'll spend the whole year or half the year getting from one side of the continent to the other. So they're following the grazing and then they'll spend the other half of the year moving back. Mm -hmm. So they're moving on every day over a huge distance. What equines do is they stay in what's called a home range. Now, a home range can be hundreds or thousands of square miles, but they don't migrate across the country. So they're not following the grasses across that, the continent, if you like. They move around this area looking for what they can find in that area so they don't migrate. So that's one big difference straight away between um, in the large grazing herbivores. Horses live in a home range, but there aren't any fences. In the domestic situation, what we do, what we tend to do with horses is we put them in the paddock for the day, we shut the gate, we say, right, you're going to stay there now for eight hours or 10 hours or whatever until I get back from work, then I'm going to bring you back in and feed you and do whatever with you. But we are dictating what they do on a minute by minute basis, meaning we are controlling where they are and when. They have no choice about where they, where they go and so on because we decide that for them. So a horse that lives in a stable, it's literally every step he or she takes is managed by a human. If you're, as I said, if you're turning your horses out into the paddock for the day, yes, you're giving them freedom, but it's, you're still actually dictating what they do and don't do. So... For instance, you'll put them out in the paddock, they'll go off for what's called a grazing bout, which when a horse grazes, it's, it's, it's termed as bouts, which will typically last about around three hours, one and a half to three hours, depends on the quality of the feed. 
And in the wild, once a horse has finished his grazing bout, then they will move to where the water is, for instance, and then they'll carry out some loafing behaviour. So that's about hanging around, laying down, snoozing, standing nose to tail, that type of thing, and squishing you know, flies off each other's face. They'll do that. But in the domestic situation, they're now trapped in the paddock. And yes, we've got water in there, usually. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, you've got water in there. Mm-hmm. but they then stand at the gate waiting for you to let them back in sometimes for hours and hours on end. and this is why gateways in paddocks end up such a mess because the horses if that gate was open would not be standing there they will bring themselves to where they want to be so the equicentral system i'll just really quickly explain means Please that you don't do. have the the horses walk themselves back to what we call the holding or loafing yard or whatever and that could be your arena. It can be in the UK. Typically, you've got a stable yard. So it could be the hard standing around the stables. In Australia, people are more likely to have an arena. Um, or, you know, again, they might have some hard standing. But the horses bring themselves back to that. That's where you keep the water. That's where you do all your supplementary feeding. That's where you give them hay and so on. And what it does is it massively reduces all that standing around loitering behavior in the paddock. And what's happening is you're actually creating a mini home range. The horses don't care how big the home range is. They All they care about is that they are getting to carry out their natural behaviour, which is they go to graze. So they go to grazing areas to graze. Then they take themselves to the watering hole and to where they can then loaf, hang around and carry out loafing behaviours. And then when they're ready to graze again, they walk themselves back out for another grazing bout. So they're, really, they're allowing, they're, they're then allowed to move like they would in the wild. And what's interesting is in the wild, like I said, the home range can either be huge or not, not actually that big. Obviously, it's bigger than a horse property, but it's, it can be much smaller. The size of the home range is totally dependent on the availability of feed. So just say in the outback of Australia, home ranges are huge because the feed tends to be very very poor in the new forest in the uk where ponies live wild but semi semi wild home ranges are much smaller because the the grass is much richer so in the domestic situation because horses you know uh, are usually you know there's plenty of feed and and they're getting supplementary fed anyway that that home range is much smaller obviously but to them that doesn't that makes sense because the home range is determined by the availability of feed does that make sense absolutely so um yeah so so what you're doing is you're allowing them this natural movement and what people report then is that their horses are far more relaxed um they they the the land management issues it's it's, it just improve out of sight so virtually no more bare muddy gateways perching in the on the land um all that hoof activity where they just stand around for hours on your precious soil disappears because they they only want to be in there to graze they don't want to stand at the gate for hours but they only stand at the gate for hours because the gate is shut once you open that gate if you can it makes a huge difference so that's just one aspect of it um as i say so you 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 you're um facilitating their correct behavior but then that obviously means then that the um, the, the, the pasture improves, the, um, there's more land for what uh, the, the land for wildlife bit is things like 
um, planting the right trees around the perimeters of paddocks, um, that sort of thing. But just the fact that the, the, the um, pasture is in much better condition is also better for wildlife, as well as any fodder trees that you might plant, which is another, another subject as well. Um, and so on. It just has so many benefits, benefits that we didn't even think of originally, but we've realised as time's gone on that um, it encompasses everything really. Things like dung beetles, I'll get onto that later because that's another subject that really excites me. Um, yeah. yeah, there's so many pluses. So we, when we do our talks, our one day talks, by the end of the day, when people have heard this same thing from so many different angles, their attitude is generally, well, I would be crazy not to do this, wouldn't I? And that's, yeah, that is so true. Because once you actually, once you actually start thinking down those lines, you realise that it's really the only way to do it if you want to manage your land well. Um, and, and yeah, we just have so many success stories. Um, it's just, yeah, it's just quite fascinating. Yeah, it's a it's a mindset change as well for horse owners um, because we need to understand that whilst we're horse owners, which may be number one for us, what we truly are is grass farmers or pasture farmers then. Um, Absolutely. And that's a really important thing that they go hand in hand and so many of us, me included, um, have only ever seen myself as a horse owner, not as an actual yeah. pasture farmer. And, um, you know, where I live here in Brisbane in southeast Queensland, we have the largest concentration of horses um, yeah. here than anywhere else in Queensland. You drive around, especially at this time of year, we're coming into our dry season and immediately, you know, you see the results of what it is that, that we're doing to our land and, um, and it has to be managed. And if we all see ourselves as pasture farmers then we can start making those kinds of changes that's right we we talk about becoming a grass farmer in our talks and it's always interesting if people if because the obviously the majority of horse owners are women but sometimes they bring their husband along sometimes he's been dragged there and at the beginning of the day he's sat there with his arms crossed but by the end of the day we've had so many husbands come up to us and shake our hand and say that was just wonderful and, and one of the things we talk about through the day is that is this thing about becoming a grass farmer mm. and partners of horse owners often see then how they can get involved in this whereas before they were sort of you know it, it, none of it made sense to them to somebody who's not horsey because what we talk about is so practical they actually then start to get excited about it themselves. So often, again, a lot of, if women come to our talks, at the end of the day, they said, I should have brought my partner. He would have absolutely loved this. And then when we go back, when we've gone back to that area, they've had, they've brought the partner with them. And well, that's even more wonderful then if you both get on board. Mm. But partners who are not horsey, because they've not been indoctrinated with this, all this horsey stuff where, you know, you must do this and you mustn't do that and so on. They can see it. Uh, for what it is they can see how how practical it is how good it is and so on we've even had husbands shake our hands and say you've just saved my marriage <laughs> oh, that's a big one it's amazing how many times it's happened or or another common one is they'll shake our hands and say you've just saved me a hundred thousand dollars like she wanted this that she wanted this big row of stables and this that and the other and you've just said you know, we actually need to rethink how we're going to do this. Mm. And it actually, sometimes it's much, much cheaper than what they had, they were planning to do. So that's another big thing is that doing it, 
this way usually will save you a lot of money because you're building the things you need rather than the things you think you need. That's, that's another um, aspect of it. Mm. Um, yes, we've done lots of talks. We used to live, we ended up living around Southeast Australia, uh, just outside, well, actually in Tambourine, south of Brisbane. So we know that area well as well. Yeah. Um, mm. Yeah, it, uh, it, yeah it, it's drying quickly now. It's drying quickly, I look out. Anyway, hopefully we'll get some rain soon. It's forecast, so fingers crossed. But um, the system itself, I believe, is setting up um, grazing paddocks. And do you... So you have them come back to their central point where their water and food is. And can you explain, mm -hmm. do you leave all of the gates open or do you only leave the gate to one grazing pasture open for a day? Yeah. How long do they graze for? Right. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. It's, what you do is you set up what's called a rotational grazing system, which is actually in farming communities is not unheard. You know, that's the common way to manage land, but in mm -hmm. horse communities it isn't. But what you're doing is, yes, you only have one paddock open at a time because pasture has to have time to rest and recuperate. I often joke that as well as what we do, we should actually set up a society for welfare for grass because... <laughs> and the, soil. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, because the, the, the pasture, grasses thrive on being grazed hard and fast, but then being allowed a long period for rest and recuperation. Again, going back to animals in the wild, what they do is they move across a landscape, whether it's to migrate or like horses do, move around the home range. But what they're doing is they're, they're biting each plant and taking another step and biting the next plant and moving as they graze. They're not generally grazing back over and over and over again over the same plants, unless there's a drought situation, of course, or whatever. They are stressing the plant, but for a really short, quick period, and then moving on. And then it might be weeks or months or whatever. It all depends from country to country and animals and so on before another load of animals come along, usually of a different species, and grazes some of those plants again, but again, they might select different plants, different types of plants and so on. So that's what's happening in the wild. Whereas in the domestic situation, what we tend to do is hammer the pasture uh, continuously. So literally every day, the horses might be, might be out 24 seven or they might just go out all day uh, from, you know, in the morning to the evening, but every day those same plants get, get stressed. And so what happened, that's why eventually what happens is that the plants you want end up dying out because usually they can't cope with that level of stress. And you end up over time with more and more weeds because they're the only plants that can actually cope. Um, or because the horses, you know, depending which weed it is, they won't eat them. So you end up with the grasses being taken over by weeds because you've got this continuous grazing going on. When you switch to a rotational grazing system, what you're doing is you're putting pressure on the plants for a short, sharp time. Then you're taking the horses out of there and moving them on to the next grazing area. And so what, you, what a rotational grazing system does is it's the closest you can come to what happens in the wild in the domestic situation. That's why it works. So 
what farmers are realizing now um because you know as with everything the more science you get about it the more you realize if something works then they'll start doing experiments and get it to work even better so on some cattle farms now what they're doing is actually moving the cattle on every day so just say you've got um, a cattle property using electric fencing they might they might have a mob of cows you know it might be several hundred head of cows in one area in a small area using electric fencing and then next day they're all moved on to the next pasture and what they're finding is that um that that area of land that that turtle area of land will produce many times the amount of pasture that it than it did when it was on a continuous grazing system so with horses, obviously, we're not necessarily going to do it to that extent. However, if you're doing um, strip grazing, for instance, you're actually doing that anyway, but you're doing it for a different reason for why people strip graze. I'll get back to that in a minute. Um, but, but by splitting your paddocks down, what you're doing is putting the horse putting stress on one small area, but the rest of the area is getting a chance to rest and recuperate. So you will actually grow more pasture, but what's interesting as well is you'll grow, the pasture that you grow is less stressed and is safer pasture. Because this is the, the big thing with our work is getting people to understand that everything they think they know about pasture is usually the opposite of what we are telling them to do. So. Typically in the horse industry, you're told, even by vets and so on sometimes, I mean, a lot of vets now are getting into uh, thinking about it differently, but if they've, if they've got a very traditional mindset, they will tell a horse owner you need to keep that horse on really short grass, you need to you know, limit their intake, you need to weigh and measure everything that they eat and so on. And we are actually, in most cases, saying the absolute opposite of that. We're saying graze the grasses when they're longer, more fibrous, um, they're actually per mouthful, they're actually lower in sugar, so they're actually safer grasses. Added to that, the grasses are not as stressed. And what grasses do when they're stressed is they give off all sorts of toxins and all sorts of things because they're stressed. And they're Whereas trying to save themselves from dying. Absolutely. They do mm. things to actually stop themselves from being overgrazed. But if you've got a horse in the same paddock day after day after day, even though the grass that horse knows that grass is not meant to be being grazed because it's giving off all these signals. The horse has no choice but to eat them. Also, they have no choice but to eat weeds that normally they wouldn't touch, but they have no choice because they're fastened in that paddock and we've taken that choice away from them. Whereas if we give them choice and we start to manage the grazing better, the pasture becomes much healthier, lower stressed, high, um, higher in fiber, lowering sugar generally and so on i mean obviously with a overweight horse and long you know you've still got to manage them to some extent but over time what we're finding is that people can actually in in, in many cases can get these horses that before were very hard to manage weight wise actually to actually start self-regulating and managing themselves very well it just takes a little bit of a, a turn a changeover period because what they end up having to start doing in many cases is the absolute opposite of everything they've ever done. And this is why we used to enjoy doing the talk so much because it, you sort of need a whole day to get that mindset to change because it's a big change in the way, in your way of thinking to start doing the 
opposite of what you've always been told. Yeah. And um, one of the reasons that listeners should know that horses will graze these grasses and they will graze weeds that they normally wouldn't graze, even though they know it's not good for them, because horses need to continually eat to stop gut ulcers. So they have to graze. And if I think it's only 40 to 50 minutes, if they stop grazing, they can actually start um, developing ulcers. So that's why they have to graze continuously and, and why they will take these foods that you say horses generally won't touch. They will touch them if they don't have a choice. We, we talk about that quite a bit, how um, what people don't realise is ourselves, as we eat a meal, we start to release acid into our stomach to help digest that food. But when we're not eating, and it's the same with a dog, when they're not eating, that acid is held back. So the acid doesn't build up in your stomach, mm. um, extra acid. Uh, with a horse, acid is being continuously drip fed into the stomach because in the wild, a horse always has access to, to something. Even in a drought situation, a horse can usually, unless things get really, really bad, can always eat twigs and leaves and something fibrous. And what that does is it buffers the acid in the stomach. Whereas if we put a horse, so when we put a horse in a paddock and we overgraze it, and sometimes deliberately overgraze it, thinking that's the right thing to do, then what the horse will do is start eating the fences, will start eating the bark of trees. So when, when your trees get ring bark, the reason they're doing that is because they're not getting enough fibre. Um, they, they desperately need that fibre to buffer the acid that's building up in their stomach and is physically hurting them. So there. So again, this is the trouble with as humans, we tend to think, you know, that in, in many ways, especially an inexperienced horse owner thinks, oh, well, I eat three meals a day. So my horse will be OK eating three meals a day or, or less even, whereas it's the worst thing you could do for a horse. A horse is meant to have access to fibre continuously. So if you actually hold that food back, what he does is, and what my husband describes it as, Stuart describes it as this, is he thinks, and, and I think he's quite right, we actually create eating disorders in horses. When you think how easily humans get eating disorders, and we're not even meant to eat continuously, because we micromanage our horses, we actually create eating disorders in them. And this is why we get gorging behaviour and so on, because what we're doing is we're holding the feedback from them um, and so they start to get anxious about that. The acid is building up and they will eat anything in sight. So, you know, that, that would be an interesting study for somebody to do at some point in the future, actually looking at that. Although I think people are starting to realise that now, that the more you try and micromanage your horses, sometimes the worse you make things. Um, yeah. Because all you're actually doing is creating this anxious eating behaviour in your horse because he's programmed, if you like, to to have food you know and not necessarily to be actually eating it 24 7 but to have it there whereas if he it's not there then he starts to get anxious about that because in the wild there would always be something to nibble on mm, yeah and what about because a lot of people listening if they're not on the equicentral system already are probably at the stage where they've allowed their um, paddocks and, and pastures to be overgrazed mm. can how long does it take from putting equicentral in to start seeing results and to regenerate the land is that a really hard thing to do or can it be done relatively easily 
Um, it all depends, obviously, um, on your climate, you know, what, what, how many horses you have and all that sort of thing. Usually people will start to see results very quickly. Obviously, in certain parts of Australia, if, it, if it's not going to rain for the next six months, you won't actually see any improvement necessarily if, if, if it doesn't rain. Um, but what you are actually doing is damage control. So mm-hmm. when it does rain, you will rapidly see results. So um, so by that, what I'm meaning is just say, for example, you have a drought period ahead of you, a, a period of, say, six months without rain. If instead of letting your horses out onto that pasture every day for the next six months, and what would happen then is those bits of grass that are left will just shatter and just get walked off basically the horse is not is not going to get any feed from going out on there because the plants totally dry and and you know there's hardly anything there but by letting your horses out on there every day letting them walk around all day just searching for the odd shoot what they're doing is that they're doing a lot of damage and that means when the drought breaks the first thing that comes back is more likely to be weeds if instead you do damage control and go, right, well, the horses are not actually going to get anything from grazing that paddock. So instead, I'm going to allow them free access to a hard standing area and feed them on hay. I know that's another issue, getting hold of hay. Um, and so instead, you're, you're removing the pressure from that paddock. When it does start to rain again, those grass plants that are still that were left in there when you first locked it up are going to rapidly regenerate. So you will have proper grass rather than weeds. So that's one way of looking at it. Another is if just to say it's not drought and the growing conditions are good and so on, you will rapidly get improvement once you actually start to rotationally graze your land. So another thing to mention as well is even though we talk about the ideal being an equicentral system where the horses come back to a holding area and so on, if you can't do that, even just starting to rotationally graze your land, you will start to see improvement. So, so you know, we're not saying you have to do that. I mean, it's ideal if you can, but even if initially, initially you start to rotationally graze, move your, your horses through the paddocks on a rotational grazing system, then you're going to see some improvement anyway. But you will see the biggest improvement if you allow them to do their loafing behaviour off the land. Because um, that, you know, that's where you're going to get remove all that standing around pressure that you get in the gateways and so on. Um, so yeah, it's it's really how long is a piece of string? But people, we have a we have a private Facebook group which we've got hundreds of people in, which is just absolutely brilliant. It goes along with the course that we sell, um, and the, we get people in there saying, "I cannot believe how quickly I've got results." And another funny one that people often say is. I read the book or I came to the talk or bought the course, whatever. And I thought, well, how am a horse going to get this? And they say, and I, and I, what I did is the very first day I left the gates open, turned the water off in the paddock so that there's only water in the yard. And I'm just flabbergasted that the horses actually brought themselves back. I thought I would have to teach them somehow. So we often have a joke about how, yes, it's because they've read the books. Um, but it, <laughs> As soon as you allow the horses to do what they want to do, they get it immediately. I mean, it was funny years ago, somebody said to me, well, I've got a 10 acre property. How will they know to come from the far paddock all the way back to the yard? And we said within 10 minutes, and honestly, within 10 minutes, they will have got it. Even if the very first time you have to lead them back, honestly, they will bring themselves back. And again, you know, usual thing, we know what's going to happen. The horses immediately knew what to do. For a start off, they know that where the 
holding yard where they, where they normally get fed and you know fed in supplementary feeding so they know that's where the action is that's where they're most likely to get supplementary feeding stuff so they're always looking to get to that area anyway this is why horses stand at the gateway staring at you um in if you're in the distance whatever they're staring at you going can you open the gate i need to get back <laughs> and so all you do is open the gate and they do it themselves which is interesting yeah and one of the things that i want to touch on we'll just take a tiny step backwards when you say they're going to they graze the grass right down and looking for shoots and that opens the land for weeds because we as yeah. horse owners always see weeds as a bad thing but as an organic um and and biodynamic based gardener i see weeds as something completely different now because they are the only things that can get through damaged soil because the grass just can't really come back it takes so long so the weeds come in first to rebalance the land and the soil so they're actually doing you a favor um you just don't see it as a favor because your horses don't eat it and it looks horrible that's right that's a really good point and again we talk about this quite a bit in the talks so we weeds are like the pioneer species so we by overgrazing we create conditions where we have the weeds have no choice but to take over the land nature hates bare soil so if you overgraze the the pasture species instead the weeds will come up and the weeds are usually already there in the soil there's millions and millions of seeds already in your soil just waiting for their opportunity to get going so another way of thinking of it is weeds are quite opportunistic plants and quite rightly so and as you say weeds will actually repair the soil so um a, a lot of them have very long root systems they'll bring minerals up from much further down than the grasses will and so on but as humans our typical response is we see a paddock of weeds and go right we've got to poison all these now so we'll go out there and spray them and kill them all then we're back to bare soil again so all that's going to happen is a lot, a lot more weeds are going to grow because there's millions of seeds in your soil just waiting for their opportunity to grow instead by using grazing management uh, and and you can aid that along sometimes with slashing and mowing that sort of thing cut the weeds back the grasses will come back again because the seeds for them are also in your soil they just need the right management for them to get in front of the weeds so that in the end you end up with a good balance between pasture plants that are good for grazing and certain weeds that the, the ones that you want in there work plants that um, you know are actually beneficial to the soil and, and can even sometimes be grazed as well um, so it's all about getting that right balance but again you know we're often told if you know we need to spray and we need to we need to rip them up and all that sort of thing and it's the absolute opposite of what we should be doing in most cases there's actually very very few plants um, and I won't go into them because they vary all around the world but the mm. there's very few that you should ever attack with um with poison in most cases all you need is better grazing management and the weeds will come back into balance you'll have just the right amount but you'll also have a lot of, of good grazing plants in there just by grazing it and you can as i said you can aid that along by mowing because mowing if you think about it all machinery all farm machinery pretty much to do with pasture management all it does is aim to copy what animals would do. So think of your mower as being like letting a herd of sheep across your land. That's all that a mower does. It mm -hmm. speeds that process up. 
Um, and don't so put a catcher on because you want the weeds to drop down and put their nutrients back into the soil as well. That's right, yeah. Um, a, a pasture harrow, all that does is what if a herd of animals went across your land, their hooves would scatter the manure. That's what a pasture harrow does, is it scatters the manure. So if you, if you realise that, you know, non-invasive machinery I'm talking about, obviously not a plough, mm-hmm. um, but in, in machinery such as a mower and a pasture harrow, what they're doing is what a herd of animals would do if they moved rapidly across your landscape. So cutting the weeds back, if they, sometimes what that does is it allows the grasses to get, it puts all that organic matter back into the soil or onto the soil and into the soil and it allows the grasses to get growing again because certain weeds grow very tall and very fast. So when they're chopped back, they then have to, oh heck, we've got to start all over again. They start over again, but meanwhile, the grasses get their sunlight, get their opportunity, and they get going. And some, then most of the time, they get in front of the weeds. So you end up with a much better balance. So again, thinking about it in terms of your yeah, permaculture, regenerative grazing, that sort of thing, and you get you start to have a completely different relationship with the plants in your pasture, and you start to see the advantages of certain plants. And the upshot of this as well is it's easier to do, it saves you money, it's less stress because you're not looking at the pasture thinking, oh my goodness, I need to get out, I need to get somebody to come in and kill all that and rip it up and replant it and all that. You don't need to do any of that usually. You Mm. just need better grazing management. And that's a really nice segue into um, dung beetles. Mm, My favourite subject. (laughs) tell us about them right well this is where i get really excited um the dung beetles are just amazing and again what's what is so interesting is that this whole subject of manure just freaks horse people out we've been told for years and years and years you've got to go out there you've got to pick it all up you've got to and then and then heck this stuff's so bad you need to sell it get rid of it somehow Again, what we tell horse people is the absolute opposite of all of that. And again, it just blows people away when they realise they've spent years and years and years managing manure in a way that, you know, they could have done it completely differently. Now, just go back a little bit. Australia is really interesting in that many years ago, they started looking at this problem of manure and how it causes so many flies in Australia. So they started looking at Uh, introducing dung beetles to Australia because in Australia there are some native dung beetles but they've evolved alongside marsupials whose manure is just tiny little you know like rabbit dropping that tiny little bits of manure or whatever and then you know humans humans sorry uh, white settlers introduced things large grazing animals cows and so on and horses to a yeah to a large extent as well and their manure is large, you know, huge pats of manure. And the native dung beetles couldn't cope with that. They've not evolved to deal with these big piles of manure. So I think it was about 50 years ago, um, they looked at bringing in dung beetles to Australia. And initially, the reason they did that was because um, of the flies in Australia. You know, anybody within and outside Australia, the joke was always that you, you know, you're wafting flies away all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so initially they were brought in to cook, to deal with that problem. So what happened was dung beetles, they brought them in from countries such as Africa and, um, and, and Europe, ones that had, that were meant to deal with these massive piles of manure. And they did an incredible job. I know that in Australia, introducing species has been a huge problem, but dung beetles, 
actually did what they were meant to do unlike say cane toads or whatever they actually when they were brought in they did what they were meant to do they live alongside the native ones so they don't actually disturb them they don't uh, you know affect their behavior so they've been a huge success and what they've realized over the years is that they do eat much much more than what they they realized because what they do is they take the manure down deep down into the soil so they aerate the soil they um, they get rid of the manure, so you're just left with a little bit of sort of powdery, fibrous stuff on the on the surface. They um, they the the worms, so the bad the parasitic worm larvae that's in the manure has no way of getting back up to the top to the top surface. Once it's been taken down deep down into the soil, they have no mechanism for getting back up, so it kills them. Um, they, they they get the nutrients that are in the manure gets deep down into the soil so this means now that the grass roots have to go deep down to to reach those nutrients so rather than being just on the top the nutrients are deep down now so the roots grow longer and longer and when the roots roots grow longer it means that the the top part of the plant grows longer as well so you end up with taller plants so this is it's just absolutely fascinating the amount of benefits there are so what we often say to people is when the trouble is when you collect your manure and sell it, what you're doing is you're, 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 you're sorry, I'll go back and change that around. Dung beetles are the world's dung management experts. Nothing you do with manure comes even close to what they can do with it because there's just no way, you know, you're removing it and selling it. So even if you compost it and put it back on the land which is still you know fine but if you let them do what they're meant to do they can improve your land out of sight by doing what they what nature does as humans this is the thing we always think we can do better whereas nature already has all the answers we just have to look at what nature's answer is for something and try and recreate that situation so in australia they're very fortunate because there's you know a good amount of dung beetles being introduced and they're actually now reintroducing even more because they've seen the huge benefits that dung beetles have been to australia so what we say to people is once you start resting and rotating your pasture as long as you're not picking up your manure and removing it dung beetles will actually come in and do their thing which will also increase improve your soil it also it means you don't have to do anything with that manure because the world's experts are doing it for you um, all for free i mean in some cases you, you buy a colony to get them started but in most cases in australia as soon as you actually start doing the right thing right being very careful which worming chemicals you use and when you use them and that type of thing as soon as you start doing the right thing the dung beetle has just come it's like they've had a memo uh, so and so's place now is ready to uh, and they all fly there and then they all start to actually do their thing on your land for nothing so it's absolutely fascinating and again once horse people realize this and get into it as, a, as a, in in the group we have you know people put photographs of their dung beetles and how excited they are um, and it's just wonderful because you know this is this is nature at its best you know it's saving you time it's saving you money saving you anxiety of look of thinking what do i do with all that manure um instead you're not having to pick it up and sell it anymore so sorry i've gone on quite a bit there no it's absolutely time. brilliant i get very excited about soil and and dung beetles and and poo and everything it's just the greatest thing ever i look yep. at um people who have cows and i have a bit of envy over their cow pats actually 
Um, yep. I, I know that's even better than horse poo. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So it, again, as um, as in learning what I've learned, and not in pasture management as such, but in organic and biodynamic growing, it's you're not just becoming a farmer; you're becoming really curious about how your land responds to things as well. And becoming curious about, I wonder what that plant is, and I wonder what that structure has, and I wonder what this is trying to tell me. And um, it's and and then when you become curious and understand what it is that's happening to your land and what's growing and why it might be growing, the less you really have to do if you understand what's growing and why it's growing. Mm. then you get more to the root of the problem so as um as grass farmers and um, pasture managers i think we need to become a lot more curious and, and as to what's there yes. and start kicking the poo open and and you know just check that's right i think out. once you start to learn instead of it all being in the too hard basket which if you think about it a lot of horse turners like i said they bought the land just for somewhere to keep the horses but actually how to manage that land because you know you're not born knowing this stuff so it's just all too hard and a lot of the information out there just tells you you know to do all the wrong things anyway so you do what you're told but the land just every year looks worse and worse and worse um once you actually start to learn this way of doing things you you start to get really excited about it and as i say it also appeals to family members partners and so on and even and kids as well sometimes because suddenly they start to see this land as a haven for wildlife and it looks so much nicer um, and everything, you know, every, it's all a benefit. So even things like you have more time to do the things you enjoy rather than spending hours walking around, if that's what you were doing before, walking around, picking up manure. I mean, how crazy is that? Even before I kept horses in this way, so I mean, I've had horses pretty much all my life, um, even before that, I used, to, I used to say, how come we have to walk around picking up manure, but a farmer doesn't do that? That's crazy. Why? And, and I, I must admit, I've never really picked up manure anyway. And here in the UK, people are pretty obsessed with it. In Australia, a lot of people still do it. It's sort of half and half. Mm -hmm. uh, but if they don't do it, you worry about why, not doing it. Whereas what we're saying is you don't need to worry about it. If you create the right conditions and, and invite the world's uh, dung management experts in, you never have to worry about manure again because they will do it for you for free and that's you know just absolutely wonderful then and it takes all that anxiety away from it you know because that is the trouble is if you're being told you should do something but you just can't uh, because it's you know you just don't there's not enough hours in a day or whatever or you've got a bad back then you know you, you're anxious about it but you don't need to be anxious about it because mm. nature already has the answers that's gonna yeah you just have to create the right conditions and 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 it will come it will yeah. happen and by managing it you get to do more of the things that you love to do with your horses like riding instead of absolutely, absolutely. that's oh, picking up yeah and so i have always wondered and and you're a great person to answer this because nobody else has ever believed it's truly possible do you believe it's possible to be fully sustainable um on a small acreage horse property and not have to buy and feed other than hay but supplementary feeding um can it be done out of great soil? That's a really interesting question. Yeah, because and fodder I mean, trees and herbs and sorry and yes. so I mean like herbs, fodder trees, um, good pasture. Can it be done? Definitely. Um, obviously, 
how whether you can do that 100% depends entirely on how many horses you've got, how much land you've got, the growing conditions, you know, your local climate, all that sort of thing. So if everything's right, if you have just the right amount of horses, you've got good growing conditions. So that's just amount, amount, you know, good amount of rain, reasonable soil to start with. Although soil can be improved with mulching, which is something else we can talk about in a minute if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, that so you know so you can so if you can gradually improve your soil if you can plant fodder trees which basically are trees that are edible trees for grazing animals so they can supplementary they can supplement the grasses obviously growing herbs and so on so yes in an ideal conditions it is possible for most people all they're actually ever going to achieve is is something approaching that they're going to be somewhere on a scale mm-hmm. because either they for instance most many 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 horse owners around the world but especially in Australia have either five or ten acres that's the common sort of size of a horse property so if you have say three horses on that if you start to manage your horses in your land and your horses in this way whereas before um depending again depending on you know how much rain you get or whatever whereas before you would have been on you would have been on a path where every year you would have been getting less and less feed from your land because of the way you were managing it or mismanaging it. You know, if you were, if you were sort of continuously grazing it and that sort of thing, uh, you would have been having, you would have had a situation where your manure areas, because you weren't creating the right conditions for dung beetles, would have been getting larger. So the roofs in the paddock were getting larger. The lawns, which is where the horses will graze, were getting smaller and so on. So every year you would have been moving you know you would mean having to buy in more feed becoming less and less sustainable by looking at it keeping it your horses this way you go in the other direction but so yeah so each year you'll grow more feed your your your, your dung's being managed properly so the horses will start to graze more of the pasture and so on and you and if you're planting fodder trees and herbs and that sort of thing you're moving in the other direction but how far you can go in that direction obviously depends as i said on how many horses you've got so if you've got three horses on five acres obviously it's probably you're probably never actually going to be fully sustainable here in the uk possibly you could be because because the growing conditions can be so much better in most parts of australia it's probably unrealistic that you you know you're going to be totally sustainable with three horses on five acres there's areas in australia where the growing conditions are perfect but it's not that many mm-hmm. um so but at least you're going in that other direction at least you're getting to that point where that land is producing as much feed as possible with the right correct management so at least you're moving in the right direction does that make sense absolutely i love it and let's go to mulch Mm, that's another exciting one <laughs> mm, i get excited by it we we um we actually put a video out last year and it blew us away because we've been doing this for quite a few years where we've been round bale mulching uh getting our horses to do the work for us so basically uh mulch really is putting any form of anything organic by that what i mean is um you know anything that's going to break down decompose or whatever so the act of mulching is putting anything organic on your soil, allowing it to break down and then uh, either throwing seeds into that or, or, or depends how thick it is, or the seeds in the ground will also come up and grow up through that. So that's mulching. So you can, and a lot of uh, uh, farmers do this anyway, so regenerative farmers anyway, not, not so much 
traditional farmers like but the um, regenerative farmers what they'll do is what's called round bale feeding where they'll put round bales out let the animals graze them um, the 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 hay gets knocked down so if you think about it, if you put a round bale out for say three or four decent sized horses they'll they'll turn that into a circle of about 15 meters of mulch so we years ago we learned about how farmers do this with um, other grazing animals we thought well there's no reason why we can't do this with horses so we started doing it with our horses many years ago and had amazing results absolutely incredible because what happens is this 15 meter circle of mulch then you put the next round bale out in another area um and that that area you might have to fence it off if it, once it starts to rain because it'll break down rapidly the seeds that are in that area will just get going and you end up with with new soil and with pasture it is just mind-blowing so we um just we've been doing this as i said for us it was quite complex we thought it, we didn't realize it was actually that astounding we put a video together last year and we put it out on facebook and we are blown away with how many people are getting excited about this and doing it and um and you know and have been doing it ever since and, and you're not made. putting the you're not putting the round bale in a feeder or a net are you you're just letting no, them eat and around. drop because if you think about it, people say oh it's funny because people often go oh my goodness i've been raking it all up and getting rid of it and i've actually it's actually brilliant stuff you just leave it there so no what you do is you put it so just say you've got a paddock a typical horse paddock with lots of bare areas in it your gateway but there might be other areas as well that are bare in the paddock you put the round bale there and you let the horses just eat it there they knock it down and you know the bits they don't want just get trampled on they mix that with their manure and so on and then uh, what happens is as i said it breaks down and and, grow, and creates new soil and grows new pasture when you think about it a round bale costs costs um, proportionately less than the same amount the same weight of hay as square bales so you're not wasting anything and again once you get your head around it you're not wasting it anyway because what you're doing is creating new soil and pasture so once people um you know net bales and so on which is if you're feeding it in a, a holding yard then yes absolutely net it because you don't want lots of mulch in your holding yard but if you're doing it out in the paddock for to regenerate your paddock then you don't net it you just let them knock it down obviously you can only do this when hay is re relatively inexpensive you wouldn't do it you know during a drought when hay is you know getting up towards 200 dollars a bale you're not going to do it then mm. you do this when when hay is cheap you know when you're paying sort of 30 40 dollars a bale if you can get it um and the horses are actually helping you to regenerate their pasture uh, and it just works so well but there's a, even if you're not feeding round bales even just all of anything organic on your land that you produce on your property uh, anything you know because it could be anything from your food scraps it could be your lawnmower clippings but you've just got to be very very careful the horses get nowhere near them you can mulch your land obviously you don't let the horses have access to that but anything organic needs to go on land develop the mantra nothing organic leaves this place nothing yeah. and everything goes on the land so again you start to think i shouldn't be selling manure for two dollars a bag of it's cost me far more than two dollars to produce that stuff whatever you do don't sell it you know everything organic needs to go back on the land and create more soil 
Um, so yeah, so mulching, we have, as I said, we've got a good video out, out about it. Um, and, and I'll send you a link to that. It's mm. just fascinating, absolutely fascinating. So it goes into a lot more detail about how to do it. So again, it's just another example of letting the animals, it's a, it's a permaculture idea as well, the animals doing the work for us rather than us doing it. it it's, um, you know, yeah. it's actually a way of creating pasture without needing machinery, without even needing extra seeds sometimes because the bale itself contains lots of seeds and or you can hand throw your preferred seeds in there as well because you're creating a brilliant medium for the seeds to grow in. Yeah. And even in organic gardening now, I've noticed a switch only in the last six months to the gardeners, yeah. even all the gardeners on uh, Gardening Australia, etc. They're saying, don't, don't toil your soil in your gardens. Just put all mm -hmm. of your bits on top of it and then just um, dig to grow in it. But they're saying the less you upset the soil, stop yeah. digging the soil, even in garden beds. I was like, well... Yeah. Now I've seen it all. We're transitioning to something, um, a real understanding of the microbes in the soil. And it's like, leave them alone, feed them from the top and just, yeah. you know, put it in where it's needed and build on top instead of digging, digging, digging and opening Absolutely. all the time. That, that digging is exposing that soil to the atmosphere, drying it out, killing the microbes that are in there, releasing all that um, carbon into the atmosphere. What's really interesting is the grasses, uh, one of the best ways of getting carbon down into the soil, they do it so fast. If you allow, you know, so when you see a field full of long grass, that's a wonderful carbon sink. Whereas if you see a field full of tiny, you know, paddock full of tiny short bits of grass, which also means it's got tiny root systems, because what you see above is mirrored by what's below, that there's hardly any carbon being held in that soil. But once those long grasses are taking loads and loads of carbon down into the soil. So, um, but yeah, the, this whole no dig thing is really interesting. So again, this is what, there's so many of these different things like no, no dig um, philosophy, permaculture, regenerative grazing. This is what we've done is taken all these ideas and, and looked at how we can do that with horses. So even in situations where horses are not native to that environment, because they're a, a grazing animal and they're actually brilliant at what they do, which is another really interesting point, is horses get a bad rap. Horses are absolutely amazing at what they do. It's just that the way we manage them gives them a bad name. Oh, horses, that's so good to hear. Do you know what I've been told by some biodynamic farmers uh, or biodynamic gardeners? Horses are non-essential recreational Gosh, and yet something like that. It was just like they're so bad for your land, and I got into that as well. I'm like, if you ever want to have good land, don't have horses. But it's all about and management. And what what actually blew us away is when we we lived in Australia for all those years, as I said earlier. When we started coming back to the UK, initially we were we were spending half the year here and half the year there while we transitioned back. We had to come back here because of elderly aging parents, and we wanted to be near them. But for a while we were doing both and when we first started coming back here we hadn't been in the UK at that time for about 22 years and what actually blew us away is that there's all these um, projects going on around the UK and Europe itself uh, which are called rewilding projects which is one way of uh, there's the different names for them but basically they're rewilding projects where they're rewilding large tracts of land and what was absolutely fascinating was that what they do what they generally do is they use a similar amount of cattle and horses as semi-feral animals so yeah yeah just that 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 bit's not important but the fact is that they're using horses 
and cattle. So what they do is they let them graze the land. Then the wildlife starts to move back in. So that in the UK, that means lots of bird life because that's the, the, the there isn't there aren't any bears and so on anymore. But the but basically they um, that means lots of bird life. And that whole area ends up rewilded, but they're using horses because the horses alongside the cattle, they both graze the land differently and both have advantages that the other doesn't have. And so we realised that, that, again, so when we, we were still doing the talks back in Australia at that time, so we were taking that information back to Australia and saying, hey, horses are not bad for the land. They're actually, even though we already knew that, this was proof that horses are actually great for the land. They actually have a quote here, which is, one horse does the work of something like 10 conservate, I don't know what it is, but it's a lot. And, you know, those horses are, are recreating biodiverse grasslands. And one really good example, the very first one we went to was in Norfolk, where after the war, uh, all this rich grazing land was ripped up. And to, it's called the breadbasket of the UK, of, of Britain or something. They, they ripped it all up to grow wheat, to grow bread, because after the war, obviously, there was rationing and people starving and all that sort of thing. And many, many, many years later, they realised that, you know, that they've lost all this amazing biodiverse grassland because it's a huge problem in the UK is, is um, biodiversity. And and they, 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 they got this land and they introduced cattle and horses to it. This was the National Trust. I think it was about 15 years ago they started. And without even having to plough and reseed, they just let the animals graze this land, which was actually ryegrass, and it is now turned back into biodiverse grassland without having to rip it up and reseed it. The animals have done that, and it is an absolutely fascinating project. And these projects like this are going on all over the Britain and, and um, Europe. But that was our first, that was the first one we saw. And that was fascinating that they recreated that biodiversity just by using grazing animals. And now it's just rich in, in bird life. And as I said, these semi-feral cattle and horses it is just a fascinating project. But there's many of them um, in Britain and Europe going on. So if anybody, if you ever get over here, make sure you have a look for them because they're fascinating. Wow, that's exciting. I've changed, you've changed my, I, I was on board with everything, but that is something new. Like that is really something new and exciting for me. I don't ever have to feel guilty for having horses for the land because I have such of a, a love for the land and a love for soil. And I have this guilt over, oh God, but I've got horses. So now I couldn't get rid of it. Yeah, well, if somebody actually says to you ever in the future, no, horses are bad for the land, say no horse. Bad horse management is bad for the land. Horses are fantastic at what they do. It doesn't make sense, does it, for nature to to for something to have evolved that's bad for the land? It doesn't make sense, does it? Horses are amazing, just like every single animal is perfect at what they do for this point in time. Yeah. That's what they've evolved to do. So they're brilliant at it. So it doesn't make sense for horses to not be brilliant at it, does it? When you think of it that way, um, it's just that we, through our micromanagement, make it so that they're bad for the land. Horses actually know exactly what they're meant to do. And if we allow them to, they will do it and they will recreate biodiversity for you mm. and them. Love it. Absolutely love it. Mm -hmm. 
have we covered everything jane what have i missed anything i think, I think we have i mean there's lots of ways people can get if, if people get excited by this there's lots of ways they can find out more i mean obviously our, our website's a good place to start mm. which is www.equiculture which is a we, we came up with that name many years ago as a hybrid between permaculture and equines um so it's equiculture.net um and yeah if people want to start out on there there's lots of articles about the equicentral system so people can find out all about it completely for free um if they want to go further we've got our books and we've got the course which at the moment because of the um the coronavirus is vastly reduced so we've got lots of people signing up for that anyway um but i think as well people are just as time goes on because especially because now people are getting more concerned about climate change and all that sort of thing people are starting to get more interested in sustainability in general and when they realize that their horses can actually be part of that so they can still have their horses like like you said it's so exciting to find that you don't have to feel guilty anymore if you do it right your land can become a haven for wildlife it can become a mini oasis in an area that everybody else might be doing the wrong thing but your land becomes um, an oasis for wildlife for those horses themselves but for, for plants for biodiversity in general and then also what happens then is your neighbors might notice that you know you've got grass when they haven't and so on so then what tends to happen is more and more people get involved and start doing the right thing themselves once they start to see the benefits um, so it's a really exciting movement and again if we can make people feel good about what they're doing rather than bad about what they're doing and save money and energy and and so on and time at the same time then it's a win-win all around we keep saying to people it's a win-win-win once you understand it you look back at what you used to do and and think what was i thinking and i'm no i'm no different you know 30 years ago i was doing everything traditionally because that's the way i'd always been told to do it and it took me with my husband who's very much a outside the box thinker constantly you know he had to, it took a long time to wear me down but constantly saying why are we doing this when the animals want to do something different and mm. it finally sank in and that's how it started yeah it's always the fresh eyes isn't it that um, are able to see what we can't it definitely is people who come to our talks who are just getting into horses they tend to take it on board much easier than people who've had horses all their life mm. and they they will tend to say oh well yeah i sort of agree with what you're saying but but that won't work in my case whereas new people who are new to it usually embrace it much more quickly but but there's lots of other people as well who've done it all their life and said i wish i'd known this 20 30 years ago i could have saved myself so much effort and yeah my land would be in a much better place now so but we do like to catch capture people if possible just before they make all these decisions about what to build and where and so on because most of the time you either don't need that thing that you think you need or it needs to be in a completely different place altogether i mean just as an example we looked at a adjustment center quite a few years ago and, and the shelters were all going to be in completely in the wrong place because again you need to know that if you are putting a shelter somewhere and again we would always say put that back in the holding yard you don't even need shelter the individual paddocks but if you were going to put one in an individual paddock, if you put it at the back of the pasture, 
and oh, she's just going to completely ignore it anyway because he want he will stand at the gate no matter what you put there. Um, he will ignore that shelter. He will stand at the gate because that is the point where he is is going to most quickly get back to where the supplementary feed is and so on. So yeah, it, all, planning is so important. Is what I'm trying to say. Mm. Get the planning right, and you will save yourself so much money. We see properties all the time where the horses and not using the land properly because of bad planning. And today is always the best day to start. Absolutely. Yesterday is the best day to plant a tree. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's totally true. And um, I remember um, if if you're ever wondering about soil, the movie that I watched that kind of changed my my mind and, and and took me so deep into organic gardening was dirt the movie have you ever seen that movie no i've read similar books but i haven't seen that movie no yeah it's dirt the movie you can actually get it free on youtube these days it's so old but it's the most amazing thing and it's an entire um documentary movie on um on soil and uh, it's it's from all over the world people all over the world who are just talking about soil and how important it is and how amazing it is and how it's an entire ecosystem right there and the amount of life in one handful of soil is more than, you know, grains of sand on the earth. And, I know. Yeah. Just, one, one quote I love is, stop treating your soil like dirt. Mm, yeah, that's why they call it Dirt the Movie because uh, they, they transition you. And I remember I showed the kids at the time and I think they were probably, you know, 15, 13 um at the time my older ones and they um finished it and they looked at me and these kids were not into gardening they are teenagers they do not care about anything and they looked at me and they said the whole world needs to see this movie and i was like there it is there's my moment (laughs) yeah without soil we have no life yeah yeah and everything we've got comes from soil period and what's so i mean if horse owners because they're in charge of five or ten acres they can make a real difference you know a massive difference because collectively horse owners are in charge of huge tracts of land and then it doesn't have to be that they're you know that they're taking from the environment they can be adding to the environment creating biodiversity and actually creating you know so many good things so they don't have to feel bad about what they're doing they can actually then start to feel really good about it because what they're doing is very good yeah i love it i absolutely love it and um and on that note i'm going to say thank you so much for your time today jane but um but mostly thank you for creating this amazing system and giving your time today and thank you for everything you're doing for not just horses but the earth they're two of my great loves is uh is mother earth and uh and horses and you're nailing both of them so thank you so much thank you thank you no it's, it's certainly a passion of ours we love it yeah wonderful and all the links will be in the show notes and um i look forward to um next time I'm over in the UK coming and and seeing what you've got set up over there and and seeing some of these other amazing farms that are are doing great things. Let's get in touch when you do. Mm, Most certainly. Thanks again, Jane. Thank you. Okay. Bye. I'm on a mission to create a community of conscious horse people so that their horses all over the world can live a better life. This is a big mission with a wonderful message and it needs your help. 
If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to join me on my mission of making the world a better place for horses by bringing consciousness to the horse world, please do one of the following. You can go over to our Patreon page at patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash come along for the ride podcast and become a subscriber to the show. As Patreon members, you're helping this podcast become a weekly show once again. And remember, any funds that go over the cost of production will go into new and exciting projects that you, as a subscriber, will have a say in. You could also pop over to EdenRiverEquestrian.com and see our range of sustainable, ethical and organic gear for both horses and humans. Remember, 50% of profits go back to helping horses all over the world live a better life. Or you could leave us a review and tell the world why you love this podcast. You can do that through whichever app it is that you're listening now. The best place to do it is through iTunes. They give juice that gives other bits juice that boosts the podcast up. And basically that gets it into more people's ears so that we can make a real difference in the world. You could also share this podcast with a friend. Tell everyone you know about it and guide them to an episode that you think they'd really enjoy. All the links you need can be found in the show notes. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you next time on Come Along for the Ride.